This episode of the Nitro Gem podcast is today being recorded mere hours after finding out the sad news that Howard Finkel, a former WWE ring announcer and iconic voice in wrestling, sadly passed away. Brian, I, I wanted to start the show with uh, any fond memories that you might have of Howard Finkel, given that you uh, grew up listening to the man, introducing many uh, of your favourite WWE superstars. Well, obviously, he was the voice of my generation uh, in a similar league of Jim Ross, Jerry Lawler on commentary. Um, Howard Finkel was pretty much always there growing up as a wrestling fan. Um, He had the voice, in my opinion. In terms of ring announcing, he was the voice, the greatest to ever do it. Um, I don't really have anything I can really pinpoint to say was a favourite personal call. Uh, they all kind of bleed into one another. He he just had this sheen that nobody has these days. Um, the fact that we still use the term and knew, which he made his own. He, he was the one that came up with that term. He was the one that made that term what it is. The fact that even just... Uh, yesterday um, AEW on their Instagram put and still which is another call of his um, goes to show the influence that he he left behind um, I suppose one of my personal favourite moments commentary aside because they were absolutely awful to him um, was when CM Punk had him as his personal ring announcer and he came out the, the fans in unison were chanting his name um, and he had tears in his eyes. You could tell it meant a lot to him. Um, commentary, making fat jokes and laughing at him was absolutely disgusting and I'd like to hope that he never watched that back because I think the moment to him was so personable, personal. If he listened to that back he probably would have been mortified. He was a guy that was bullied throughout his career. He rose above it and became a legend. Um, I will say Booker T on commentary then was very professional. It was Michael Cole and Jerry Lawley poking fun and it it leaves a bitter taste in my mouth, more so now, uh, now that Finkel has sadly left us. But... Uh, yeah, there's nothing more I can say. Uh, Howard Finkel, love you, man. Thank you for everything. Howard Finkel, um, as you said, uh, a iconic voice in wrestling. Um, obviously, me being a WCW guy, I had to listen to Dave Penzer and Michael Buffer. Um, but in terms of wrestling in and out, everybody knows Michael Buffer as the boxing guy. Uh, but Howard Finkel is the wrestling guy. It doesn't matter which promotion you enjoy. Uh, Howard Finkel is the uh, gold standard of professional wrestling ring announcing as far as I'm concerned. Um, as you said, he had that sheen. He had that unique voice. Again, we did, we did talk about David Penzer uh, a couple of podcasts ago about him having a, a certain uh, deliverance and a certain way of doing things. Uh, Howard Finkel was uh, beyond that, way beyond that. Um I think my first experience of Howard Finkel was the um, gimmick battle royal at WrestleMania 17. 
Um, and I think I think it, I think he ring announced everything in that pay per view. Yeah, he did. But I started watching that pay per view about halfway through, which was the gimmick battle royal. And yeah, he, he, he the consummate professional, as you said, he was placed in some weird storylines. Well, we'll say storylines. Um, he, he he was placed in some some strange segments. Uh, there's a few that I remember with uh, Chris Jericho back in '99, uh-huh. and again, like you said about the bullying and everything like that, he was made to look like a complete idiot, and I don't think he deserved that. Uh, the the CM Punk one that you mentioned then, I, I do remember seeing that as well, and I thought that was a really really cool and nifty idea. And as much as the commentators, apart from Booker T, as you said, were ribbing fun at him, and I'd presume that is because Booker T hadn't worked with him much. Uh, Booker T actually said on commentary that um, the one thing he was looking forward to the most when he actually got to WWE was Howard Finkel calling his name. He said that that's when you knew you made it. Yeah, I can see where he's coming from there. Like I said, he's he's the gold standard in my eyes. The, Absolutely. The, the video that I saw, as you said, about him coming out with CM Punk, such a really, really good idea, and I think that actually got him over even more because we all know that there's many CM Punk marks out there. And in Madison Square Garden, we have to mention that as well, which was symbolically the home of WWE for many, many years. Um, that's pretty much where he started out. So it, it was a homecoming for him in some sense. So we've started the podcast off today with a little a little segment of what Howard Finkel was uh, capable of doing and uh, a little bit of the entertainment that the fans got from him and a little bit of a thank you from the fans as well as they chanted his name as he came out to be CM Punk's uh, special guest ring announcer or personal ring announcer. I still, I still think that is such a brilliant idea, uh, whoever came up with that kudos. And uh, hopefully he'll be remembered fondly as he was in that video, with uh, everybody sh- chanting his name on the next WWE production, I couldn't ho- only hope so. And I mean, and you say the next WWE production, um, obviously there's no fans there right now, um, but hopefully WWE do him justice and give him the tribute that he truly deserves. Yeah, I, sh- I should have elaborated there. My hope was the audio that we played would be replayed on a Raw or on a SmackDown or whatever it, the case may be without the commentary over the top of it because they can isolate the audio. To have that audio chanting Howard Finkel's name uh, from way back when 
that I think that would be fitting. I think that would be perfect. Absolutely. The other thing I was going to discuss with you, Brian, was yesterday's news, which would be the 15th of April, as we're recording this, that at least 18 WWE superstars have been let go or furloughed during the coronavirus pandemic. Well, for me, being the WWE fan that I am, I can say that I've put up and glossed over a lot of shit. This one, for me, I don't want to say it's a deal breaker because... I don't feel like I can be a fan of a company that treats its employees like like that. It's one thing to let stars go for money-saving costs or just to, just to trim the fat on the roster side of things, as they usually do every year anyway. This doesn't fall into line with the annual spring cleaning, as they call it. This is reactionary to a pandemic to show the shareholders that you are looking after your business first and to an extent I get it however to outright let go people during a pandemic knowing that there's no work for them away from the WWE uh, some of them Drake Maverick being one of them fearing that they're not going to be able to pay the bills that they don't know what their future holds because we don't know how long this pandemic is going to last for and especially after donating $16 million to the president to basically bribe him into making the WWE an essential business to continue live shows in Florida. It's just shameless. Honestly, I'm just so angry with how it's turned out. Obviously, there's people in there that are fine, but when you, when you think that there's talent there that didn't really have merch... So they don't have that to fall back on. They were lower tier stars at best. And I'm talking the Drake Mavericks. I think he had one shirt there at that time. It's It, it just fills me with rage. It, it really does. It could have been handled so much better. It just seems really selfish. Uh, WWE aren't losing money, guys. They're not. The projections that have come out today say that this year's is looking to be one of the most profitable years outside of the fact they don't have fans. Uh, I don't know how that works out. I'm not, I'm not really completely knowledgeable about it. It's just what I've read. There's just absolutely no need. And the defence that other businesses are doing, it, are doing it as well. Well, same goes to them. Fuck you. I think in particular the person that you've mentioned there, Drake Maverick, which is obviously Rockstar Spud from back in his... Uh... From back in his UK days, he wasn't earning much money on the UK indie scene or anything like that. I actually managed to have a couple of conversations with Drake Drake Maverick back when he was Rockstar Spud at a PCW event years and years ago. And those boys aren't on a lot of money. A lot of those boys do have second jobs in the UK and a lot of those boys don't have a mortgage. They rent their apartments and they rent their houses and obviously they've got wives and they've got kids and stuff like that. In terms of Drake Maverick moving to America, now Drake Maverick first entered TNA and Impact Wrestling and then moved on to the WWE. I don't know if he moved on with Jeremy Borash or not. I don't know if it was around the same time. You might be able to correct me on that one. It wasn't long after that Jeremy Borash went over to WWE, if I can recall correctly. Maybe the way around, but yeah, there wasn't really much time from what I can remember between the two actually joining, because it just seemed like at that time there was an influx of TNA talent or ex-TNA talent 
Um, yeah. Jumping ship, so to speak. So in terms of Drake Maverick, I wouldn't have thought that he'd have a mortgage. I think he probably would be renting while he's over there. And I think watching the video that he put up on his Twitter account... Heartbreaking. Absolutely heartbreaking. Yeah, it, it, it spells that to me. It spells that he doesn't know if he's going to be able to pay the rent and he doesn't know if he's got to get on a you know, a $500 flight back home when the pandemic is over and he can fly home because essentially the dream is over. Yeah, and people really need to think about what they're what they're saying in regards to this, saying that, oh, yeah, the WWE talent, they're, they're in the big time, they're earning loads of money. It's like, yeah, if you're actually in the upper mid card to the, t- uh, to the main event, if you are a lower-carded guy, like I say, you're not, having, you're not getting the merch sales because you don't really have merch. You're not getting the screen time. I know Drake Maverick had screen time as an on-screen general manager. Uh, as far as a wrestler, it was... It was. It became pretty scant over the last year, but anyway, yeah, lower tier guys, they're they're having to pay their own travel. They're having to pay for their own accommodation on the road. They have to be at TV every week. It is not an option. It's what they're told they have to do just in case they're needed. So you take all that into account. All they're living off is their downside guarantee, and that's before you look at medical as well, because they can't get health insurance. So they have to pay all those medical bills. Luckily, Drake Maverick didn't wrestle a lot, so he probably didn't have to deal with that as much as other people. But that's not the point. The point is is that they aren't on a lot of money, not compared to other people. And it's no different to them than working seven days a week on the in the scene. They're just not making enough to really live off long term they might be able to go a couple of months i did actually read today that any release talent on the talent on the wwe roster are subject to the 90 day no compete clause so they will be paid that's that's good that's good they will be paid for 90 days but again we don't know how long this pandemic is going to go on for so long term it's not looking rosy for those type of people you've educated me there actually because i didn't realize the no compete clause included that they would actually get paid yeah, they're, they're basically still under a contract to a sense. It's just that once that those 90 days are over, that's it. They're, they're on their own. Yeah, so kind of like a transitional period. Yeah, it, that, that 90 day complete clause, not complete clause, it's just basically there to stop them from going to another, another federation that's basically got TV rights. Yeah, they don't want another Lex Luger essentially. No. But then again, none of us wants another Lex Luger. None of us do. So what we're going to do is we're going to transition quite nicely there uh, into Nitro number five, which is coming from the Denver Coliseum in Denver, Colorado. It goes down on October 2nd, 1995, off the back of last week's 2.7 Nitro rating against Raw's 1.9. We've got a few dark matches to start off with, which include Brian Pillman defeating Disco Inferno. Meng and Shark from the Dungeon of Doom defeating Jim Duggan and the Renegade and uh, Diamond Dallas Page, the television champion, defeating Alex Wright to retain the WCW World Television Championship. Now there's a match I'd like to see. Yes. So we start off Nitro with Flair interrupting the commentators at their set, uh, all very spontaneous as Bischoff liked it. And it now shows a crowd rather than it being in the little black box as we talked about a couple of weeks ago. I do feel sorry for this dog that that Michael's sort of carrying around with him. I, I, I forget what he's calling him, but or calling her Pepe. Pepe. But Brain seems to have a, a bit of fun with the teasing. 
I, I do quite like Brain at this moment in time. He's he's got that heel persona down to a T, really. The dressing up of any dog is cruel, though. I think I said that a couple of weeks as well. It just uh, it, it aggravates me. Yeah, I don't particularly like it either. Flair, Flair interrupts and he, he's just going mental at Owen Anderson and he's going mental at uh, Brian Pillman. And we all know that tonight, Ric Flair is going to face Owen Anderson in the main event. That promo, I was in hysterics watching it. He just comes out of nowhere, grabs the headset off Bishop, puts it on and just cuts this completely mental incoherent promo i don't understand half of what he's saying he's just like a rabid dog and it's so funny this is this is the floor i love it's like you said last on the last episode you might not understand half the stuff that he says but they are good promos they're just so entertaining yeah you're relying on his intensity aren't you really yeah but his intensity it's it is for comedic reasons. I mean, you look at most of the promos that he does, where he's just taking off his clothes and elbow-dropping shoes or what have you. It's like, this is why we love Ric Flair. Definitely. First up, as a match, is uh, the Lex versus Macho match, which is Lex Luger's number one contendership to the WCW title up against Lex Luger leaving the company. So it's, it's essentially... Macho's alright here. He can get a title shot or he can just be responsible for Lex leaving the company as quickly as he came into the company. And thinking back, looking through the video package and everything that came before this match, when Macho slaps Lex in a promo a couple of weeks back, which is completely impromptu, he wasn't he wasn't expecting it or anything like that. It's added so much to this because every week now it's mentioned or it's shown or it's just... Uh, it, it, to me, it just added that little bit extra that this feud may have needed yeah it's much needed intensity mm. um i gotta say you know i've made my feelings on lex luger known uh, at this point you could probably take what i said verbatim and i'll probably say it again today on this episode what they're actually doing with luger with macho man randy savage with the dungeon of doom here another set of wrestlers that i'm not particularly fond of again i'm pretty outspoken on that Despite how bad they are, the storyline itself is actually really well put together. There's enough intrigue in terms of, is Luger a part of the Dungeon of Doom? Is Sting part of the Dungeon of Doom? There's enough things mm. that that make you question what is going on. And it, it is pretty entertaining for that. I just really wish it was some other people. Yeah, I kind of get you. You like, you like the structure of the feud, but... There's one character that you can't really relate to and it's kind of annoying that Macho isn't paired up against somebody who could equal Macho in terms of intensity, promo ability and ability in the ring to make this feud phenomenal. It's good, but it's not phenomenal. Yeah, it's just missing that little piece, really. I mean, the Dungeon of Doom, they could probably get a pass for just for just being the obstacle because, in all honesty, when you've got stars like Savage, who gives a shit who the obstacle is? You just want savage to prevail and obviously with it being lex versus macho the the ideology behind the dungeon of doom is that they're they're trying to get everybody one by one and now you've got lex versus macho they're supposed to be on the same side against the dungeon of doom and now they're fighting each other so that psychology again is it's working very quickly and very easily because don't forget this is only episode number five so we're only four weeks into nitro and already the dungeon of doom has turned two of the main guys against each other 
it's a big way to start any wrestling show, in my opinion. As much as we wonder about Lex's ability in the ring, Lex versus Macho is a big way to start any wrestling show, especially in our wrestling show. I also think that Macho might be an advocate for gay pride here with his uh, ring attire. I looked at that attire and I thought, he's wearing a fruit salad. <laughs> it, it, there's just so many different colours. The, the tights he's wearing are like half fruit salad, half uh, check print. It, it is a look, and only Randy Savage could pull that off. Yeah, it's a shame that uh, in the days of high definition that we, we don't get to see Randy Savage in his attire in all its glory. I like uh, I like the New Day for that. Their, their attire is always like sparkling. And I think Macho would have been great in this day and age with HDTVs. Yeah, absolutely. It starts off with a tie-up and they go to a break whilst these guys are still tying up. Somehow they manage to get outside the ring, like over the top rope, and they're still tied up plastering over the cracks here because Lex just isn't capable of performing in the ring whereas Macho is. While we come back to uh, Macho getting into the ring while Lex is on the outside and a shoving match and a slap to the face of Macho with a tease of a suplex uh, turns into a net breaker on the floor from Lex Luger. A small package on Lex straight up and a gorilla press slam from Lex Luger. To be fair the gorilla press slam did, did showcase some of Lex's limited ability. Yeah it was very impressive. He just picked Savage up with absolute ease. It goes to show that he does have some core strength there. I call him gamma muscles with little substance, but he does have that strength if he wishes to utilise it. And I suppose that's probably why I have such a disliking for the guy as a wrestler, not as a person. The person, he is a piece of shit. But as a wrestler, you do get this feeling that he can do a lot more. Yeah, do, do you think when it when it comes to Lex, when it comes to many wrestlers that aren't that good at wrestling, do you think it's their their own laziness and born idleness, or is it just that? So so me and me and Beth had a discussion about this last night, and we were saying basically you can dance or you can't dance. Well, I was saying that, and you can learn to dance, but it's easier if you don't have two left feet. Yeah, wrestling, in my opinion, is is kind of the same, and and Lex has always struck me as one of them people who absolutely looks the part. If you want to create a wrestler, you make it look like Lex Luger minus the horrific mullet. But he doesn't have the ability, even though he's trained, because he's probably got two left feet. Would you agree? Maybe, yeah. Um, I've heard stories that uh, prior to WWE, uh, in his NWA days, that he did have something that he was a little bit faster, but he was also a little bit leaner back then. So it could just be a case of he's put on way too much mass. Yeah. I do wonder sometimes as well when he's performing a move or whatever if he potentially could rupture something even going back you know 25 years you still wonder like when he's doing a when he's holding Macho up in this gorilla press slam that if he just tore because he's so finely built would a muscle just go like that and he'd just be like oh no <laughs> just drop Macho on his head it, it could be disastrous you, you, you can't be perfect you've got to yeah give your body at least a little bit of cushion in my opinion yeah he's way too mm. tight looking i always thought that about lex there's 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 looking good and then there's looking like that yeah it's a little bit too much for me uh, speaking of um it was actually pointed out to me on twitter last night i actually had a bit of a thread of my distaste to lex luger if you go on my twitter at brn brdshw it's basically my name without 
the vowels to make it easier. Yeah, I went on a long rant about it, but somebody had actually pointed out Lex Luger's selling because his selling, it's all ah, ah, ah. It's all he ever does, and now I cannot not hear it. It's so funny. It's like lighting a candle and you just catch the flame on the tip of your uh, tip of your thumb. Like, ah, you know, it's exactly the same. It's absolutely brilliant. There's some of them when he when he goes into selling deeply for somebody, uh, he'll prolong that ah for a little bit, and it honestly does. It just sounds like he's giving birth or something. It is. It's the worst. One of the worst noises in wrestling. It's got to be. You, oh my god! I don't know why I had this vision. I just thought of like alien, like a chest burster just coming out of his chest. Ah, like a mini Luger. Yeah, when he's when he's got match up for a gorilla press slam and it just comes out of his chest. Yeah, and he just goes. Rah! Oh yeah, yeah. Um, oh. Obviously, I had to put up with that for a good few years. That noise. You just. I wouldn't say you get used to it. You just kind of zone it out a little bit, but. You know, in your household or in my household, if, if if my missus didn't know that I was watching wrestling and she heard that, I mean, I, I dread to think. I don't know what my neighbours think. We get back into the ring and the referee's down. He takes a bump. Macho is on top for the big elbow, but nobody is there to make the count. Macho wakes up the referee, but the giant has come down. There's a chokeslam for Macho, but he leaves Lex alone. And now that the referee's come round... Lex attempts to put him in the rack instead of actually just going for a pinfall, which is just ego, pure and simple. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, it made absolutely no sense to me, that. No, uh, Savage is out and uh, he can't answer the count, so Lex wins and there are huge boos in the uh, Denver Coliseum on this one. I, I don't really think I have to ask how you felt about this match, but I'm going to ask anyway. No, it wasn't great. We know that Savage is... Well, should I say, was very well known for scripting everything in his matches. If he had scripted everything in this match, it might have worked with somebody else. It doesn't work with Luger, and it's got he's got it wrong. I think Lex wanted to get his finisher on just to put himself over. Really, it, it it's a lot more effort than there was required. And I think going with the storyline, if you want to make the giant look like the monster, then by all means, take the cheap way out and just pin him straight after the Giants' choke slam. You say effort, but that torture rack was absolutely abysmal, even for his <laughs> standards. The one thing you can guarantee from Lex is that the the torture rack does look good. It looks like a really painful manoeuvre. Yeah. With this, he just picks him up on his shoulders and he's like half bending down. I, I suppose he's trying to sell the match a little bit, but it, it didn't look like he was in any real danger. Um, there was no need for that at all. It would have just looked a lot better if he covered Macho Man and got the win that way. It is what it is, and that uh, continues the feud between Macho and Lex. And it serves to make the Giant look like a, a legitimate threat, which two weeks in a row they've done that. You know, I can buy him. You can buy him as an absolute monster anyway. I mean, he's seven foot tall, for grass sake. But, you know, in terms of a guy that's just coming in and wreaking havoc, he looks unstoppable they've done an absolutely brilliant job with that Disco Inferno dancing in the aisle just randomly on Nitro we're supposed to have a match but Disco Inferno is just going to come out and he's just going to start dancing uh, getting more heel heat I, I don't mind Disco for that yeah. and getting 
his face on TV a little bit. I had a discussion with somebody last week who actually said that they couldn't understand why Discord got so much TV time. It, it turned into a little bit of a heated debate, which I had to end by just not replying because I don't get people who don't understand why Discord was there. From what I've seen, and this is very little, there is some ability there. Uh, I've only really seen the one match from him, uh, but you can tell that he's he's got he's got the fundamentals down. Um, as as a character, this it, it speaks back to what I said on a previous episode that Glenn Gilberti, the man on Twitter, is pretty much a troll, and here he's essentially that in character. He's just a troll. He's just coming out, dancing away, ruining everybody else's fun, you know. And when he gets interrupted by Eddie Guerrero, he's like, "Why are you interrupting me, man? You know, <laughs> yeah. Why don't you come and dance with me?" <laughs> Yeah, he's the the way that I had to describe it, and obviously you've got a lot more of a Disco Inferno to watch. Is that he gives you that breather that you might need in what might be a chaotic episode of Nitro, where there's a lot to take in. Yeah, and obviously he's he's got ample ability. I'm not going to say he's the best wrestler in the world. He's 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 a perfectly fine wrestler with a a good look and a good I think a good gimmick. Uh, so that's why I don't have anything against this guy personally. If Lex Luger is a statute of limitations, then as as far as I'm concerned, Disco, you've got a job for life. <laughs> Very true. Yeah, <laughs> I'll go with that. I will say something as well. Bobby Heenan dancing to uh, Disco's music. Yeah, that was brilliant. <laughs> yeah, he looks just so happy. He looks like he's having a good time. Heenan just sticking up for the heels. I just, I love it. I absolutely love it. Uh, the confrontation, as you said, with uh, with Eddie Guerrero of sorts, and then Dean Malenko's out next. So this is Eddie versus Dean Malenko. A quick video package is played with uh, Eddie versus Jushin Thunder Liger at Sunday main event. Oh, I didn't actually know that this God. even existed. I didn't know this Sunday main event thing had existed, but apparently it does. Eddie versus Liger. Now, there's a match I'd like to see on TV. Yeah, definitely. I noted as well that Dusty Rhodes and Tony Schiavone were on commentary, which felt a little bit more natural. We go into this match, which is just Eddie versus uh, Dean Malenko, and I loved your text message from uh, earlier on today where you said, I, I can't keep up with this. <laughs> I can't write my notes. <laughs> no, it's very hard, and it wasn't like it was a really long match either. Yeah, it's it's very hard. We are actually watching it back and taking notes, which, honestly, I'm not really going to do right now. Uh, just a peek behind the curtain, guys. Um, I injured my thumb at work the other day. I can barely write. So... The fact that I've actually got notes is a miracle in itself. Uh, I wasn't going back to write down every big spot in this match. It, The match, it was a technical masterclass. A bit short, but it was a really, really enjoyable match for what it was. Yeah, I've just, I'm actually just reading my notes now and I'm saying I'm not making notes of this match because it's just something that needs to be seen to be enjoyed. Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> That's what I've started out with. Uh, and then smack bang in the middle, it says Hogan arriving takes TV time away from these two as he's saying he's looking for the giant. Yeah, that pissed me off. I have gone into a little bit of detail about Eddie. is about 16 foot in the air and about 10 foot across to hit Malenko with a crossbody, which is just insane. Oh, yeah, the elevation on yeah, that. The crowd loves that... it as well. Yeah. Um, Eddie attempted a frog splash but Malenko gets the knees up and Malenko attempts a pin but Eddie reverses 
uh, both up Malenko asks for another match uh, and they shake hands I know this is the worst review of a match ever simply because it's that good of a match uh, the only thing I can say is you know if you've got a little bit of time and you've got the WWE Network to your disposal or YouTube or Daily Motion or wherever you can see this match uh, go and do it if you've got a spare five or ten minutes you know and you're sat on the toilet taking a dump this is definitely one of those matches that will see you through that dump lovely it's really really good I really really enjoyed it I, and I think this is going to really speak for every cruiserweight match going forth because we know it's only going to get better you know when the likes of Rey Mysterio and Chris Jericho join in on the on the action it's going to be very hard to keep up yeah, we don't really know what we've got ourselves in for here now, do we? No, we're, we're screwed, guys. Yeah. You know, this might be our last episode. <laughs> could, Who knows? It could be. Uh, Hogan, there's a Hogan promo in the ring after he's just arrived at the building. Uh, he says he's going into the back to find the giant. So he comes out to say he's going into the back to find the giant. He goes and shakes his hand with all the crowd after giving his little, I'm going to come and find the giant sort of thing. So automatically I kind of think to myself oh yeah he's being a coward now because he's slowing down he's going round the ring and he doesn't really want to go and find the giant because he's shit scared of him and then it turns out that there's a little old woman with a little old cane throws some powder in the eyes of Hulk Hogan and Jimmy Hart doesn't know what the hell to do so he gets a nice cane to the back as well and goes down selling like a trooper well you know it it's a human from Kevin Sullivan it is uh, and None of us saw that coming, did we? No. <laughs> Immediately, the moment he got attacked from this lady, I'm like, that's Kevin Sullivan. It, yep. The height, the body shape, it, you you can see it from a mile off. He gets him back into the ring and obviously the giant comes down and it's back to twisting his neck again. They're, they're trying to eradicate Hulk Hogan, get him out of the picture completely and obviously as Halloween Havoc's coming up, make the giant the world heavyweight champion. They go to shave his Fu Man shoe off, which is quite surprising, really, given Hulk Hogan. I kind of think that this is playing into what you were saying a couple of weeks ago, Brian, about the Hulkamania thing getting really old and really stale, and you know the Hogan sucks chance of becoming more and more prominent on Nitro now. Yeah, getting rid of the um, the Fu Man shoe is the perfect way to get rid of Hulk Hogan. Yeah, uh, the comments make a bigger deal out of it than what it needs to be. They're shaving his moustache, they're shaving his moustache. They're not killing him, guys. No, they're not. They, but they are. I think they are trying to get across that they, they're, they're trying to kill Hulkamania. Ah. Now, I would, have t- I would have taken them a little bit more seriously if Bobby the Brain Heenan and Steve Mongo McMichael, this is one of the few times that them two actually get along, is that the pair of them, while this is happening, are laughing. Yeah. Not whilst he's shaving the moustache, but when the little old lady, who turns out to be Kevin Sullivan, the taskmaster comes out and hits Hogan with the cane, they both just burst out laughing. And Bischoff's just like, oh my God, what's going on? And the other two are just like, <laughs> like that. <laughs> it's a good job it wasn't my favourite wrestler, let's put it that way, because I'd be pissed off at the commentary, you know, dumbing it down a little bit. But because it's Hogan, it's actually quite amusing. Yeah, they, they get a pass. So the giant coming out and sort of taking care of Hulk Hogan instigates the American males attempting to come out for a save. And then Hogan's best buddies in the world, the Nasty Boys, they come out to help. But Giant takes care of all of them. Heenan is loving this stuff happening to Hogan. Laughing his absolute ass off. Uh, well, one trainer comes into the ring to check if Hogan's all right. Thoughts on the Nasty Boys, Brian? Not a fan. Me neither. Nope. That's pretty simple, isn't it? <laughs> uh, 
Saggy Knobs and whatever his fucking name is. Brady Knobs, isn't it? Saggy Knobs. There we right. go. There's a nickname for him. Saggy Knobs. Uh, the other one was Jerry Sags, so that does make sense. Saggy Knobs, yeah. Yeah. Oh, terrible. Absolutely terrible. Always guaranteed to have a job as long as Hulk Hogan's there. Uh, you've always got Hulk Hogan's best mates. Followed him everywhere. Mm. Down to Atlanta, to Australia, to Florida. Yeah, I was I was never a fan. And to be honest, uh, earlier on in the day today, I read a interview with uh, Sean Waltman, one two three kid, uh, X Pac and Six, and he said that the Nasty Boys were just a piece of shit. That they were big rivers. Yeah, they were big rivers. Uh, they, they kept ribbing Sean Waltman uh, as he was kind of starting out in wrestling, and then one day he just snapped and he said the next time you do that you will regret it and then one night they were in the house of blues because hogan was uh, performing because he used to be a guitarist in a band or whatever and i think it was brian Nobbs had noticed that sean waltman was there and he started pulling his hair from from uh, a couple of people back pulled his hair and sean waltman just went for him decked him uh, they got into a bit of a fist fight which um, jerry sags ended up getting involved in as well and from that point onwards, the Nasty Boys never fucked with Sean Waltman ever again. <laughs> from that point, apparently they were they weren't best mates or anything like that. Fucking good. He socked him hard enough to to realise that oh yeah, I've I've sent this guy over the edge now. I, I probably better not piss him off anymore. I have got one worse story that I've heard. I can't remember where I got this story from. It's been a while, but the day that uh, Randy Savage died. Uh, the Nasty Boys were at a convention and when the news broke out, Brian Nobbs was just going round to all these other tables laughing his head off about it. Wow. Yeah. Piece of shit. Well, that says it all about the Nasty Boys, doesn't it? I never liked them and even more so now. I think we go to a break from here and uh, as we come back from a break, on is already in the ring and we're going to go straight into a Ric Flair entrance, which is always spine tingling. Uh, we're going to go into the main event, which is Ric Flair versus Arn Anderson, a rematch from Fall Brawl. As I said on the last podcast, the Fall Brawl match was just superb from front to back and well worth a watch. So there's high expectations for this one as well. Arn is just the absolute, the perfect heel throughout this match with one thing after another like pulling her you know and using chops against Flair and you know taking all the dirty routes that he can uh, as the guys fight to the outside it's pretty much the same uh, and the, it's a clear babyface versus heel bout which is just storytelling 101 both veterans of, of the business uh, know perfectly how to work the crowd up and how to make things look so good and so real on TV I like that they actually shied away from making it just a technical match like they would do. Yeah, uh, it's it's essentially a brawl, and it's mm-hmm. it's a decent decent short brawl for what it was. Um, you know, as you say, Arn Anderson being the perfect heel, uh, Rick Flair being the white meat babyface, which is really weird to see, but yeah, it is. It works so well. It works so well, and I really want to see more from these two. Yeah. The odd glimpse of heel Fleur does come out in every match, I think, and, and this is no exception, because obviously Arn's got the advantage to to the most point, and Fleur goes to the eyes to get an even keel. 
and you know uses a couple more of dirty tricks that he's got up his sleeve. It's basically an eye for an eye. Eye for an eye. That's a very good analogy. Or uh, an eye rake for an eye rake. Yeah. <laughs> but Fleur keeps it quite clean, as you said. Like keeps it baby face, and he goes for a figure four attempt. But Orin, he's uh, right near the rope, so he manages to um, he manages to break that. And one thing I did find interesting about this is because uh, Monday Nitro was live that day, the commentators were talking about the OJ verdict that was literally filtering through as this Nitro was on the air. That that was I was like, whoa, that's just weird. <laughs> I actually missed that. Did you? But then again, yeah. Uh, then again, I don't really pay attention to commentary as much as what I really should do. My eyes are solely focused on what's really going on in the ring. Now and then I'll pick up on some little uh, humorous comment. Yeah, I think it's Enan again that comes out with a really, really quick and really clever remark about OJ Simpson and something in this match. Uh, I can't actually remember what it is and I didn't note it down, but uh, just to hear him talking about the OJ verdict just sort of took me aback a little bit. It's interesting. It, it does put a timestamp on the show as well. Yeah, it does. It keeps them in current affairs it, it keeps them obviously OJ's kind of like a pop culture type thing now or, or, or that era is around a pop, a pop culture type thing whereas obviously the guys in the WWF aren't able to say things about OJ because obviously it's all taped yeah so th- this gives Nitro it gives Bischoff and Court uh, a big advantage in terms of being able to talk about what other sporting related things are happening and I noticed this as we were going along with uh, Nitro that they talk about, they talk about the NFL. They talk about the Atlanta Braves and all that sort of stuff. Yeah, it makes it feel real. The figure four is applied, and Orin quits just as Brian Pillman is jumping off the ropes for a splash on Fleur. Yeah, uh, and a beatdown ensues as we go to a break. Uh, when we come back from the break, the announcement has already been made that Fleur will face Orin in a cage for next week on Nitro. That is basically how we close off the show with uh, the commentary team talking about next week's Nitro the upcoming pay-per-view and what has happened uh, throughout the night so you are going to get your wish again Brian Fleur versus Owen in a steel cage uh-huh. that's not bad going the full brawl match was just a, a wrestling masterclass this is a brawl and we're, we're leading up to something special with uh, with a cage match in terms of comparisons, we've got ratings in for, for this one, which is a 2.5 versus Raw's 2.5. So it's even Stevens this week uh, in Raw versus Nitro. Uh, the Raw results were uh, Razor Ramon uh, defeating the 1-2-3 kid, who we were talking about earlier as being Sean Waltman. Hunter Hearst Helmsley, Triple H, defeated Barry Horowitz. PG-13 defeated Al Brown and Sonny Rogers. And Bret Hart defeated Jean-Pierre Laf- Lafayette. I always get his name wrong. Jean-Pierre Lafayette. So that's the end of Nitro number five there, Brian. What did you think overall? It wasn't a bad show. It wasn't brilliant by any means, but it wasn't bad. In terms of story development, anyway, uh, the the progression with the Dungeon and Doom, their the rivalry with Savage, Hogan, Luger and Sting, it, you know, it's gone to a, a whole new level, which is great. Keeping the giant look strong, absolutely brilliant. Uh, same, same goes with uh, Fleur and Anderson, with Brian Pillman, storyline just continuing. Uh, matches were very hit and miss uh, for what they were. The obviously the Eddie Guerrero Mind Call match again. Go out your way to see it. It's a it's a very good match for how short it is. 
a, mi- a mixed bag of sure, but it wasn't bad. So I'd say two out of three matches there are, are pretty decent. Yeah. So we move on to Nitro number six on uh, October 9th, 1995 in Chicago, Illinois. We start off with the uh, dark matches, which are Paul Orndorff defeating the Renegade, uh, Diamond Dallas Page, who's the TV champion, defeating Alex Wright to retain the WCW World Television Championship, Eddie Guerrero defeating Dean Malenko, and the Taskmaster defeating Randy Savage. So, storyline development there in a dark match straight away. Yeah, I think this is where it, uh, the inexperience comes into play. Um, it, it's We've noted this before, like, uh, on previous podcasts, that certain things that are happening in the dark matches aren't being mentioned when they really could be. I know dark matches are there for the purpose of warming up the crowd, but if there is storyline development, at least, say, before the show we had this match, this is what happened. Yeah, before we came on the earth, this happened. Yeah, yeah, I can't I can't understand why they didn't use it, but that's that's just... yeah. The open of Nitro is uh, again the the Hogan highlight package from last week, which is just you know him being accosted by a, a little old lady that turns out to be Kevin Sullivan. As we discussed before, I really really like this Nitro opening, and I I've been reading the Nitro book by Guy Evans, the incredible rise and inevitable fall of Ted Turner's World Championship Wrestling, and in that book it details this uh, the set. Where they where they filmed this WCW Nitro explosion thing and everything, so there was kind of like this set street which kind of looked like New York City or like a suburb in uh, Brooklyn, something like that. Uh, and Bischoff and and the guys from TNT absolutely loved this and they thought this is this is really good. And the idea of what you see now is it's exactly what they wanted. But there was a little caveat in 1995 when they were filming this is that a hurricane actually ripped through that entire set. So they they'd signed the deal with Disney and they said yeah we'd love to shoot here you know we want to get everything done and all that sort of stuff and and literally the day that they went there to film a hurricane had ripped through the entire set which is just some severe bad luck the the, the main guy who went over to do the filming phoned Eric Bischoff up and said there's a problem uh, and Bischoff obviously said oh, why what what's the problem so he was told that the hurricane had ripped through this set design in uh, Disney Studios and Bischoff said how much do you need to repair it and they said we're looking at about $50,000 and Bischoff just said is it going to look exactly how we said it would and they were like yeah of course and they were like right don't worry about it so Bischoff just phoned up you know whoever was handling Ted's money at that time or handling WCW's money and just went right I need a check for $50,000 make it out to Disney and they just got on with it. And the WCW opening that you see now is essentially brand new. It's a brand new set. It's the Virgin set that's never been used simply because it was bought with WCW's money and a gift to Disney. That's very interesting. They did an all right job. I think they did an all right job. <laughs> yeah. The uh, aerial shot of, of Chicago as we open as well is, is something that I, I absolutely love. Um I have this thing for aerial shots. When uh, but I think Blackburn Rovers were playing Liverpool uh, maybe a couple of seasons ago in the FA Cup and the, the dusk was just setting and they managed to get... It's funny you'd say a blimp, actually. I think it was either a blimp or a drone circling the uh, circling Ewood Park 
and they managed to get this beautiful video shot of Ewood Park and the surrounding area, Alan Shearer Way and you know, a little bit of Bolton Road and Livesey Branch Road and all that lot, and it looked absolutely stunning. I saw Chicago and when you see it every every you know, at the beginning of every wrestling show, I think you see it quite a lot now on WWE T V as well, where they do the um the venue and then they'll do a shot of maybe the city or whatever. I just really, really dig that. Yeah, it amplifies the importance of where they are. Yeah, I think it does. Yeah, and I think I, I'd I'd like to think that I'm not alone in in that. If you see your own hometown or your home city, and you kind of get you go get a little bit giddy about it. You're like, oh look at that, that's where we live, sort of thing. Yeah, kind of like when uh, Heston Blumenthal had his. I can't remember the name of the program, but he used to make like giant versions of classic meals. Like they they had an episode in our hometown, well my hometown of Darwin. Uh, where they made a giant cup of tea and giant di- digestive biscuits. And just seeing that on TV right in front of the town hall in the town that I've grown up uh, grown up in, it's like, ah, oh, I know that place. I live there. Like, you know, you are going to naturally, for lack of a better term, mark out for that. Yeah, I didn't even know that had happened, to be honest. I'll have to YouTube that after we've finished. Yeah. So the uh, so we're in Chicago and the commentators are all wearing Chicago Bears NFL jerseys, which are pretty neat because they're navy blue. I quite I quite like that uh, that design. Bobby Heenan's uh, uh, question mark on his. Yeah. I have to I have to ask what the hell that's about, but I liked it. They're obviously all facing the wrong way because they they they're showing off the names at the back, and you know McMichael just picks up Eric Bischoff with ease, like he's just a little baby, and turns him round. It's just so sweet. Um, I do kind of feel like Michael and Bischoff do have quite a decent relationship that comes across in the commentary whereas Heenan obviously is playing the character yeah I mean Michael does get a lot of like from wrestling fans and Eric Bischoff has come across as a bit of an apologist for him on uh, 83 weeks at times Um, and yeah you can actually see that they are friends so they're talking away and uh, the brain actually alludes to the Giant and Taskmaster having a restraining order against them even appearing at Nitro tonight. So they're restrained from the venue itself. They're not restrained from Hulk Hogan or anything like that. And as they're talking about that, Sting comes out full of beans like ADHD Sting uh, and states that he'll be he'll be sorting out the problems between Lex and Macho once and for all tonight. Like he's got this brain fart of an idea that he's just going to settle everything. And obviously, as we know, Sting is the US champion and he's literally from the commentary table to the entranceway to go and face Shark in a United States title match. On his way down to the ring, uh, I've, I've noted that Sting is tanned. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> he looks good. He's, he's looking after himself really well at this point. His roots are showing a little bit, so the blonde surface Sting is kind of coming out. And to think that they used to say that there, were, there was two Stings. I remember having this, this argument years ago when I was younger. And I always maintained there was only one Sting. It was always Steve Borden. And they were like, nah, there was a blonde one and then there was a long-haired one. And I think this kind of proves, even if his like, smile and his mouth doesn't prove it, I think it, his roots showing prove that he was only one Sting. So yes. everybody from my childhood, nah, 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 nah. That's all I've <laughs> got to say. Uh, in Shark's entrance, Pesner says he's from Tsunami. Tsunami is not a place. No, it's not. <laughs> so they're... I don't quite know where they're going for. I'm going to presume it's just not something as, as basic as coming from 
the ocean. Yeah, just say it's from the fucking sea. Come on. It's a shark. Where else are you going to see shark? Either sea or sea world. One or the other. Pick one. I have I have this thing in my head that they, they used to bill him from the, the deep blue sea. I'm, I'm sure that they did, you know, in like an old pay-per-view. I, not a really old pay-per-view, but one before Nitro started. Are you sure I'm you're sure not thinking of Shark Boy? Oh, yeah. Yeah, I am. It, Never mind. In cafe, be Shark Boy, Shark Son. The, <laughs> that threw you off. <laughs> I don't need sleep. I need answers. <laughs> like I need to. I need to research this. And if I don't find out the answer, I ain't going to sleep tonight. Yeah, wait. This is that. That's how. What have you done? That's how I care for Shark boy is shark son. <laughs> Sounds good to me. <laughs> and shark boy was always the better of the two. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, <laughs> second generation superstar. That shouldn't tickle me as much as it has. Oh, this podcast has gone uh, off the rails. It has a little bit. Um, the match, uh, the match is over very quickly. Uh, Shark gets in a few offensive moves in with punches and clubbing blows, and and you know his general powerhouse and a running power slam. But uh, Sting with a couple of stinger splashes and a top rope crossbody gets the pin and quickly gets out of dodge because Shark is straight back up trying to grab him. Classic squash match. Pretty much, yeah. It doesn't harm Sting, and to be fair, I don't think it harms Shark as well. Well, it doesn't harm him as as low as he already is in that faction. After the match, we get another highlight package from the Hogan Giant debacle. I just thought of something as well. Going back yep. to the whole uh, Kfab Shark Boy being Shark's son. Okay. The first pain that Shark has in that match, that is what Shark Boy had as his attire as well, for his mask. Yeah, he did. Yeah, he did. I don't want to spoil this for you, but I'm 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 almost certain that you'll see Shark Boy when we get to 2001. I've heard that he was in WCW for a couple yeah, of coffee. I'm just not entirely sure it was on Nitro. No, probably probably wouldn't have been. Mm, that's a shame. So yeah, an extended highlight package from the Hogan Giant confrontation the last week. Uh, they keep playing this now, and it's just getting more and more hilarious. Really, they have edited out all the uh, the laughing that McMichael and Heenan are doing though. And then we get into this, and I want to know if you've Googled who Mr. JL is. Uh, I was going to ask, because I'm pretty sure that Eric Bischoff has said this on the, on his podcast. Was it Jerry Lynn? You're correct, yeah, it was. Yeah. It was. So I, I had to Google this, because I had no, no fucking idea who Mr. JL was. And as soon as I saw it was Jerry Lynn, I was like, oh yeah, JL. You, you know, when I looked at the initials, I'm like, I'm pretty sure that's Jerry Lynn. Yeah. Uh, and then once you see, obviously, his mouth's cut out in the mask, and uh, you can kind of see Jerry Lynn's sort of facial feature there, can't you? Yeah. I'm, I'm not I'm not too clued up on Jerry Lynn, and I'm not entirely sure when he started, but I know that this is probably his first big break when it comes to the big three. At this point, he was wrestling uh, in places like Mexico, and that he wasn't. It, I don't even think he was in ECW at this point. No, he'd not been in ECW uh, until uh, after his tenure in WCW. Yeah. And Mr. JL... Jerry Lynn uh, will be facing Sabu, which is just brilliant. This is this is great because we always love watching Sabu. He's straight on the offensive with intensity as he always is. Slam a somersault leg drop, a springboard wheel kick in quick succession to start. Sabu just does not fuck about and just does not give a shit, does he? I want to actually cut back to something as well that you you might not have actually seen. Okay. But there was a very very notable person in the front row, right in front of camera. Before they cut to the ring, they see one fan screaming to the camera. 
It was Justin Roberts. You're going to have to... He's the AEW ring announcer. Also, yeah, he used to be the WWE ring announcer. Oh, right. Yeah. You you would probably know him more by face than by name, but yeah, it's him. Yeah. Chicago native. Ah, I can't believe it. How old is he in this? To be fair, I can't even tell you how old he is now because he has such a baby face look to him. He's very young looking, and I'm going to assume now he's in his mid to late 30s. So I'm going to say around here, he was probably approaching the teenage years. Wow, I can't believe it. <laughs> yeah, look it up. Look up Justin Roberts WCW and the first image that comes up on Google, because I double-checked that it was him as well. Yeah. The first image is him from this episode. I love it. That's brilliant. That's absolutely brilliant. <laughs> Always in-ring announcer talk, and there's a notable one on this show. Hey, maybe he learnt his trade from uh, David Penzer after all. He, he saw everything that was happening in WCW and he looked at David Penzer and he went, that's the job I want. <laughs> he does have a bit of David Penzer quality to his voice as well, so you might be onto something. Mm. Hey, fair play. Good spot there, Brian. Good spot. During the match, there's uh, a lot of Hogan sucks chants. I don't know if you caught them. Uh, maybe I did. <laughs> I did. Maybe your boy there was partaking in such things. Proceeding uh, a lot of huge Sabu chants as well. Sabu's massively over in this in this area in this neck of the woods. Jerry Lynn, I can't call him Jerry Lynn. Mister JL gets uh, gets some good offense in to turn the tide and fly to the outside with a suicide dive, but allows Sabu to get the advantage again uh, with a spinning wheel kick on the inside. Uh, there's a somersault sent onto the outside, which always looks dangerous to me, and uh, Sabu sets a chair up for a jumping spinning kick to get a little bit more elevation against the rails with JL. JL manages to get himself back in the ring and reverses to get a belly to back with a bridge and a two count. There's a big drop kick in the corner. The commentary team really, really enjoyed that. They just went mental for this drop kick in the corner. And Sabu again manages to get back on top with a camel clutch, but JL gets a DDT off the corner turnbuckles and gets a two count again. So they're telling the story that you know Sabu is kind of a little bit more seasoned here, and that he, he's a little bit more ruthless in his uh, in his aggression. But JL's getting the odd hope spot. Yeah, he's getting the hope spot. Sabu attempts a head scissors with JL perched on the top rope, but it kind of slips off, and JL flies. But Sabu just gets it into a power bomb, and there's another camel clutch which just gives Sabu the win. JL doesn't even tap. He doesn't. He doesn't even nod yes, I tap out or anything. I was actually wondering, because Sabu is quite well known for his botching, if that was actually a botch finish. Like, he was meant to do the, uh, what was it, a Frankensteiner? Uh, that That's what I commonly know yeah. it as. Like, you know, it's yeah, like Hurricane Ron, really. But yeah, the Frankensteiner. Um, and he just seems to land. It doesn't look like Mr. JL pushes him at any po- at any point. So it kind of looks like he just drops dead. He just misses it. I, I, I mean, I completely agree. And uh, apologies for me calling it a head scissors because I do get confused with like head scissors and hurricane runners. And... Yeah, they all bleed into one, really. They do, yeah. So they're very, they're very similar moves. I, I apologise to all the listeners for uh, giving it the wrong... Uh, if you'd like to get in touch with me on Twitter, get in touch with NitrogenCast, at NitrogenCast on Twitter, and bollock me for it, by all means, go ahead. On first watching of this, I think it was meant to happen. It just looked a bit sloppy. But I, I go from like wrestlers' instincts, like um, 
and I suppose it's more of a common day thing rather than a thing that back in the day, uh, the intelligence levels with wrestlers because it's much a higher pace now that they they kind of like used to things going wrong and they just somehow and it's like kismet or some like kinetic uh, train of thought where if something goes wrong they hmm. immediately snap and pick it back up. Yeah, I quite like that psychology. I think I think that's interesting. I've not I've not really thought about that to be honest. Yeah. Um yeah, it's a good shout. This finishes obviously with the powerbomb and then the camel clutch and the fight continues. You can hear the crowd as as we go back to the commentary team. You can hear the crowd absolutely, you know, loving everything that's happening in the ring post match. Sabu does actually go for a somersault sunset flip to the outside which Jail is kind of reluctant to let go of the ropes for. Uh, but in the end, he does. So it kind of looks a little bit sloppy, but would have been a really, really sweet way to end the televised element of this match, shall we say. And while we're talking with the uh, commentary team, Mean Gene uh, has managed to get himself down to the ring and has Lex Luger and Sting in the ring who call out the Macho Man. So this is what Sting has been alluding to uh, earlier on in the night with regards to Lex and Macho, that he's going to sort everything out once and for all. And his idea is for the pair of them to face each other at Halloween Havoc if they both defeat their respective opponents who are both Dungeon of Doom members, Meng and Kamala. Sting does say to Macho here that uh, he's paranoid and insecure because the giant never seems to go after Sting. He always goes after Macho, he goes after Hogan and he always goes after Lex now. So Sting's now telling Macho that he's paranoid and insecure and I think, as we've discussed before, that Macho can kind of sort of go off when it comes to a promo, I think Sting handles the whole thing pretty well here. Yeah, he ties ties it all together. I mean, even I can't remember verbatim what Lex says to him and all that, um, but you can tell that he kind of fluffs it up, and Sting immediately just clicks into gear and mocks him. It was absolutely yeah. brilliant. He just goes, and I just thought that was funny. I love this Sting. I really do. Um, yeah, Lex Lex turns around and says, um, you're putting words in my mouth. Yeah, that's it. And and Sting just sort of goes, oh, I'm putting words in your mouth. I'm, put, <laughs> I'm putting words in your mouth. <laughs> it, it reminds me so much of Joker Sting that we got in TNA for a little while. Yes. You know, very, entertain, very entertaining. Yeah, it was. Um, me, again, uh, me and the missus, we had a bit of a conversation about this last night and, he, and she just said to me... Um, she said, oh, this isn't the cool sting. I'm like, what are you on about? This isn't the cool sting. This is the cool sting. The cross sting is ace, but this is the cool surfer sting, dude. You know what I mean? Um, yeah, it, there, there's more more personality to this guy. There's actually more of an arsenal of moves as well. Yeah, there is. You know, the, Yeah, there is. Yeah, the, the, the sting character, it's only perceived as more cool by people that don't really know anything of Sting before that because it's basically the crow and crow was the crow was massive in pop culture yeah and i think uh, obviously the crow the crow element to his character you know propelled him to new heights whereas without this without this as a basis or uh, you know the founding blocks he's one of the one of the most over stars in wcw at this point there's a reason why he's the u.s champion and, and yeah you know the crowd goes mental for him the women fucking love him but to get back on, get back onto point, <laughs> and not decide who the coolest Sting is, um, because I'd actually go with the Joker Sting. But there you go. Sting says that uh, Macho is paranoid and insecure, and there's another quote again uh, that he says you might slap the wrong guy one day, 
and I love that he's selling match all that because in this in in that ring there, Sting is not the veteran promo guy here. He's he's not the veteran interviewer. He's he's the he's the new guy. Lex has been doing it for years. Macho's been doing it for years. Mean Gene Auckland's been doing it for years. Sting is is the new talker here. Um, and I think he handles Macho really well. And like you said, he, he he handles Lex really well as well. He gives he gives Lex enough rope, but Lex yeah. doesn't need much rope to fuck anything up. No. Uh, <laughs> so, as he said, when he says, um, oh, you're putting words in my mouth and Sting just mocks him, uh, it's, it's gold, it is gold. I really, really enjoyed it. Lex tries to worm his way out of it uh, as Sting says he's disgusting, like he's disgusted and he, that he's not the total package. So he's kind of goading him into accepting this now. And there's what there's at one point I honestly thought that Sting was going to call Lex Luger a pussy. And if that had have happened, that would probably be my ringtone. <laughs> it would. I, I, I just wish he'd have called him that. But Sting, we, we talk about Hulk Hogan and the Hulkamaniacs. We've got the little Stingers and everything like that. Uh, and I'm presuming that's the reason why Sting just stopped himself from saying the word pussy. But how good would that have been? It would have been awesome. That would have been my, my all-time WCW moment. Yeah, I think he just goes, you're just a... disgusting. <laughs> God bless you, Sting. Um, so Lex accepts the, uh, the proposition put before him and obviously Macho's all in. So at Halloween Havoc, if those guys can beat their respective opponents, they'll face off against each other once and for all to settle this. So last week's Nitro match, absolutely irrelevant now. Yep. As we come back from a break, uh, a limo pulls up, and would you believe who comes out of this limo? It's Chris Benoit. It is Chris Benoit. We won't see him tonight on Nitro, but we will see him next week on Monday Nitro. Oh, God. Um, I am looking forward to his promo so much. He was yeah. never the best promo guy, but he's, I think I think his promos were as good as his haircut in this. Yes, it is Chris Benoit, and there's a lot of, a lot of good matches that we're going to be able to discuss um, forthcoming on Nitrogen Podcast. So stick with us. We advance in this episode of Nitro with Disco Inferno coming out for a dance. I've I've written in my notes that this, this essentially makes him the first Nitro girl <laughs> because every, every week now halfway through Nitro he's just coming out to dance and that's better than what I put down because I said he looks like Tommy Fassetti from Vice City in this <laughs> yeah with his high collar in his flowy shirt you know? yeah did 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 Tommy he, did he, did he not used to wear a black shirt as well I mean I, yeah. I get the suit like the whole suit and shirt thing even you know to the pressed collar. It's um, it's absolutely reminiscent, and I, I specifically remember uh, an alternative attire that you could actually buy where you had had a flower shirt underneath. I might be completely wrong. I might be just bleeding his his Hawaiian shirt and his suit together. I'm misremembering. I just hope the guys at Rockstar, yeah, it was Rockstar, Rockstar Scotland that made that, weren't it? Um, Rock, yeah. Uh, if Rockstar Scotland were watching, you know, 1995, 96 WCW and saw Disco Inferno and thought, "Yep, we're gonna put him in Grand Theft Auto." Like, I'd be so happy with that. Uh, uh, Glenn Gilberti should get, like, royalties for that. Yeah. uh, Bischoff tells us that he isn't scheduled to be on Nitro tonight, and it turns out he's just dancing before the entrance of Bubba Rogers. And once Bubba Rogers' theme goes off, Disco has, like, a ghetto blaster, and he just plays his theme anyway. Like, this is really good. I don't get why people oh. don't like Disco Inferno. Yeah, I don't, don't get me wrong. Before this podcast, I had my reservations about 
uh, Disco Inferno, and I've even, like, at him on Twitter, just joshing, not being serious, just saying, like, oh, no one remembers you and all that, you know, this should remember him because this is just gold, absolute yeah. gold. Like, like I've said, he's, he's such a troll. He's such a troll. I was absolutely howling when he got his ghetto blaster out and his themes just playing on it. Like, he knew what was going to happen. Someone was going to interrupt me. Like, I got a plan B, bitches. Yeah, I think I think this is just really, really good. Really good, you know, character development. And maybe he got a little bit of free reign to, to do whatever he wanted here. Um, but it is just so... Like, there's not much comedy we've seen on Nitro as of yet. And this is probably you know, the first major element of comedy on Nitro and I, I think it fits so 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 well. And then and then when Hawk comes out and it, it's it's so childish this and it <laughs> <laughs> he grabs somebody's cap and puts it on on his uh, shoulder pad on the spikes and then just walks off. Yeah. I mean what the fuck? When I when I saw that, I thought to myself, yeah, he's gone into business for himself. It's impromptu and he's just sort of gone for it. But then as as the match has progressed, which we're obviously going to talk about now, it all feeds in. So, you know, the, the match is, is, is basically a dud. It's 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 nothing because, you know, Bubba gets some offence early and, and you know, um, Hawks on his, his uh, return back from his broken arm, which Kurosawa broke not too long back. But basically, you know, we get a couple of elements of you know trying to put Hulk's head into the turnbuckle and everything like that. But then Disco gets onto the apron, and this this is what makes me think, oh, okay, well this maybe that cap thing was planned. Uh, Disco gets on the apron and starts dancing randomly again, and I just love it. Uh, Hulk chases him away like really comedically, and Hulk, I've always, I always considered like. You know the Legion of Doom uh, were were just not to be messed with at all. No. Um, but for, I know from the day that I first saw the Legion of Doom, they were just like bad motherfuckers. Like I'm not scared of many wrestlers, but those guys, you know, they they were intense and they were just like fuck that shit. I wouldn't fucking dare. No, I wouldn't either. So the fact it's Hawk in this actually like terrifies me a little bit, and I think like a concern for Disco's safety. Do you know about Paul Heyman? Uh actually believes that Hawk was untapped singles potential. Apparently, before he um, took over ECW, he was actually asked in an interview who he thought was the most untapped potential in wrestling and who he'd build a company around. And he actually said Road Warrior Hawk. That's surprising. Um, I I, I wouldn't discount it, to be honest. Um, No, because in this match, you do see glimmers of... Like, what he can do. You're probably not going to see that in tag team matches because tag team matches are, by design, convoluted. Yeah. You know, they're, they're in and out and in and out. When you actually get to focus on somebody in a singles match, that's when you get to see their individual abilities. And, you you know, for what it, for what it is, this match, you do see a little bit. There is a little something. Yeah, there. there's there's not much to go off, is there? But you can see there's the tiny elements that would see that, you know, see him through if he was to be a singles competitor. Um, I I, I completely agree there. To be honest, um, it 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 does seem, um, odd to me not seeing Animal with Hawk, but that's just because we're no. bred that way and that we we've been raised that way. Yeah, exactly. Because they're in Chicago here as mm. well, which is the. Uh, their hometown. I'm not sure if that's official or kayfabe, but that is their hometown. That, and you'd think that you would get 
both of them on screen at the same time. I just wonder if, like, at this time, was Animal injured or something like that? Because I, I can't imagine that they wouldn't have had them together if they were if they were both fit. Animal was actually recovering from a, a back injury, a very serious back injury, which didn't clear him to wrestle because he was going through a case with uh, Lloyds of London. Hawk's all right to wrestle, obviously, because he's not injured and he's not restricted by anything, but Animal uh, is currently on a leave of absence because of uh, an injury sustained to his back. They do they do make a return when Animal is able to. Let's put it that way. Uh, I don't want to spoil much of it, but I did do a little bit of research. So we do get to see Hawk over the next nine months or whatever. He will be in sporadic matches on WCW TV. Uh, and then the tag team themselves, uh, the Road Warriors, will be in action uh, further down the line on Nitro. So I'm hoping that this is gonna this is gonna escalate into a Disco versus Hawk kind of feud. I know that Disco's been coming out every week and dancing in front of everybody's entrance and everything like that, but uh, this is the first time that Disco's actually sort of in um, has, has sort of pissed off a person properly. You know, he's kind of insulted him by putting the cap on his uh, shoulder pad on his spike. So maybe somewhere down the line in the next few weeks, we get to see Hawk again in singles action. Um, as you said, it gives us a little bit more insight into what he what he's capable of singles. So again, we go back to a, we go back to a break, and when we come back, uh, Hogan is making his entrance dressed all in black and with no mustache, obviously. He says the games are over and it's time to take care of business, uh, particularly family business. And Hogan mentions Andre the Giant's son. So this is the first time it actually happens. The Giant is meant to be Andre the Giant's son. That dispels a lot of hearsay and theories and uh, was he or wasn't he that we were talking about on previous shows. And obviously you mentioned that Paul White had actually said in um, it said in an interview that that was not the case. Well, it's, it's on TV. Yeah, and it might have just been something Hogan had said... Um, impromptly um, and it might not have been the case but I think there's more there's more fire where this smoke is yeah I think so Yeah, I have to say as well the booze that Hogan gets in this oh my god I was grinning from ear to ear at the booze like finally somebody on my side yeah the um, it's getting more and more prominent isn't it yeah uh, mean Gene covers it up and says uh, it's because he's not dressed in the red and yellow, he's dressed in black. Which I thought was an odd cover, to be honest with you. It is an odd one. Um, it's. It, I think I'm quite impressed with Gene actually trying to cover it himself and, and just sort of ad-libbing yeah. it. Um, but yeah. It, it... Yeah, for what it was, I mean, good job, Gene. But, you know, it's not exactly something that you feel like fans would get a really bit pissy about. Mm. You know, he's he's in street clothes. He's not come out in his attire, which happens to be black and white. If he had done that, yeah, for sure, I completely understand. It's kind of like if Bret Hart came out one day and decided, oh, instead of wearing pink and black, I'm going to wear yellow and green. Of course, the fans are going to be a bit, eh? You know, they're probably not going to like it. You know, so I, I I can get the psychology a little bit, I suppose. I don't think it would warrant that many boos, though. The Giant is allowed, isn't allowed to come anywhere near the venue, and Hogan goes off on a tangent about... Um, well, he says other promoters, but I think we all know that that's Vince McMahon. Yeah. Uh, he says he's dying and choking on his own ego, and now Sullivan and the Giant are trying to eradicate Hulkamania just like Vince did. 
Shots fired. Yeah. Uh, sirens wail, and here come the Dungeon of Doom in a monster truck, followed by police. And the police are scrambling to, to make sure that the Dungeon of Doom don't enter the venue. But instead of them entering the venue, Hogan decides that he's going to go out and find the Dungeon of Doom. So he won't be going out of the ring and shaking hands and high-fiving with the fans this time. He's going straight out. That cuts us to a break, and as we come back, the cage is lowering with all the fireworks and uh, all the good stuff. Preparing ourselves for Arn versus Ric Flair in a cage. This is the third time these guys have faced in the past couple of weeks. I really, 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 really look forward to this one. We go back to the commentary desk uh, as the cage is being lowered and that poor dog. Oh. It has a mini helmet on now. I miss but... that. <laughs> it's just abusive. Come on. <laughs> uh, even, the, even the missus was just like, what the fuck is he doing to that dog? Please come and tell Bischoff that the Giant and Hogan are being kept apart successfully so there's no problems in terms of uh, what's going on outside. And with Arn in the ring, Fleur gets an entrance again. We don't see Arn ever enter, uh, apart from at Fall Brawl. Like Arn's already in the ring. I find that it's a bit sad, really, because I think of the two themes, whilst Ric Flair's is more iconic, I actually prefer Arn Anderson's theme and the Four Horsemen theme. I absolutely fucking love them. Yeah, I was going to say that... Um... Prior to this podcast, prior to actually knowing anything really about WCW, I'm talking news about, I'd actually heard the Four Horsemen slash Arn Anderson theme. I'd seen it on a random video on on, uh, on YouTube, and that is a glorious theme. Mm, it's really good, it, really, really yeah. good. Um, yeah. You might remember a tweet from uh, a guy called Gary McDonald, who's uh, an old friend of mine, and he said the greatest theme in wrestling of all time is the Four Horsemen theme. Um, I wouldn't disagree. Yeah, you know, it's it, it's up there. It, it's yeah, it's definitely up there. If anybody said that, okay, yeah, that's above Steve Austin, that's above Hogan, you know. Um, despite my personal preferences, I can't disagree with that. I mean, again, anybody's uh, viewpoint is you know it's all subjective anyway. But you know, I I wouldn't turn around and say you know what that's you're, you're well off base with that. What are you thinking? Surely there's better. I I couldn't I couldn't argue with that. No, and and to be fair, I mean, when I was growing up, uh, I wasn't the biggest Arn Anderson fan. In fact, I would say I was not an Arn Anderson fan whatsoever. If it came to a video or something like that when I were a kid or a teenager, I would I would fast forward through it. Um, it's only now in this day and age that I actually appreciate what Arn Anderson was back then, and even more so now when you listen to his podcast and you know what a top bloke. Same with the Four Horsemen. I wasn't really uh, invested in the Four Horsemen. I knew it was Ric Flair's baby sort of thing, and I knew the wrestlers that were in it. It just weren't for me. I was always, I, will, I was always a Sting fan, and I was always, and I, I, I do, I love Sting's Crow theme as well. You know, that's that's up there for me. But that's a personal preference when it comes to actually looking at themes objectively. And I know that I know that I've talked to you about this before and I really, really hope that one day we get to do a podcast that's just all about themes. I would just absolutely love it. We can give her favourites and all that sort of stuff. It could make for a good bonus episode. Yeah, I'd love to do it because, you know, it's just something I I got really obsessed about. I used to go to the library and download little fifteen second wave files that were WCW themes and WWF themes and I'd put them on a CD or I'd try and put them on you know, a floppy disk even when it was back then um, just to take home so I could listen to them because themes were so hard to get hold of. Unless, unless it were the CDs that I, I don't know if WCW actually ever did this but WWE they used to do an annual CD you know uh, 
WWF Volume 1, the music, Volume 2, the music, yada, yada. Yeah, we had um, WCW Mayhem, the music. Ah. Yes. Um, again, we'll, we'll talk about that one day on a, on a theme podcast. But The theme of the podcast being themes. Yeah, good, good shout. Wasn't a big fan of the Four Horsemen, but I would always say that the best theme in WCW was the Four Horsemen. Without without a doubt, without question, um, for me, top to bottom, listening to every theme that I ever heard in WCW, the Four Horsemen theme was just spine chilling. It was, and with the horse gallop leading into it as well. Yeah, yeah. Chef Kiss, yeah, definitely brilliant. Unfortunately, obviously, Owen's in the ring, and we don't get to hear that theme. Fleur gets into the ring, and obviously, I've enjoyed the the last two bouts that these guys have had, and the straight at it, quick offence from Owen turns uh, to Fleur offence, and then back to Owen using the cage, uh, while Nitro takes another break. So it's really, really back and forth as we start the first minute. As we get back from the break, Fleur's on top as we come back, and then Owen again, back and forth, back and forth, and the replays are showing that Owen was uh, trying to get out of the ring, but he was chopped, and then ended up crotch shotting on the ropes, which. You are not wearing a cup. You are not oh, going to enjoy. Um, I can only imagine. <laughs> especially from that height. Flew back on top using the cage to his advantage, but Owen again uh, manages to get his advantage and uses the cage again. So we're using the cage a lot and making this again about a personal brawl, which is really, really good considering their backstory. Flew comes back with a clothesline and then a Flew strut, which just always works the crowd. Even when he's heel, you know, people cheer for that. Um, and a massive vertical suplex. And then uh, we see Brian Pillman scaling the cage, but Fleur managed to, manages to see uh, Pillman get, climbing the cage and gets to the top and throws him off it. And whilst he's on the top rope, actually ha- axe handles on. And then a figure four attempt, but on with the right hand gets the three count. Now, on on first viewing of this, I was like, well, hang on a minute, a right hand. And then that's without it even trigger- triggering in my head that he'd obviously brought a foreign object into the ring and the replay shows that as they slow it down that uh, he's got tape brass knuckles and as he's in the figure four he gives him a left hand and that's it Arn will get the win in the cage and as we cut back to the commentary desk while the replay is on uh, Fleur comes up to the commentary desk and again absolutely tears Bischoff's headset off his head and breaks it and, and just challenges Arn and Pillman to a fight on next week's Nitro saying he'll find a partner by hook or by crook, but even if he doesn't, he doesn't care, he'll go out there and he'll face him in a handicap match, he's that pissed off. Bischoff attempts to try and put the headset back on again, which is just amusing in itself. And they talk about the Giant and Hogan while Brain sides with the dungeon and obviously siding with the heels as always. Says he's sick of Hogan being shoved down all our throats. Uh, They then talk about Lex and Macho at the pay-per-view Halloween Havoc, which is just two weeks away. Um, as we go off the air promoting the matches for next week, which will be DDP versus Johnny B. Bad, Chris Benoit versus Eddie Guerrero, oh. and Jim Duggan versus Meng, of course, uh, rounding up with the main event, which will be uh, Fleur with or without a partner versus Arn Anderson and Brian Pillman. So you're all there for Chris Benoit versus Eddie Guerrero. Chris Benoit's debut against one of the greatest wrestlers of all time, Eddie Guerrero. It's something to look forward to. Absolutely. We've got a 2.6 rating for this, a 2.6 for Raw as well. So it's neck and neck again, the second week in a Raw. And uh, the Raw results which went up against this were Owen Hart and Yoko Zuna and the British Bulldog defeating Diesel, Shawn Michaels and The Undertaker, which is pretty stacked. Very. And Fatu defeating Skip. So there was only two matches, but the the stack in that six-man tag team is um, it's something else. 
That is Nitro number six, October 9th, 1995, from Chicago, two weeks away from the pay-per-view. How did you think that one went, Brian? It was a much better episode than last week. I wasn't really a fan of the cage match. I thought it was a little bit rushed. The intensity was, uh, again, it was pretty much a brawl, but it was essentially just a four-minute match. Um, the, the finish, I should say, it took me out of it a little bit, uh, not being able to see what had happened straight away it just kind of like like i say it was rushed it just happened uh kind of it kind of had a little bit of a disconnect for me um the commentary pulling us out of that pulling them out of that mess and saying yep he had his hand taped up the replay showing that his hands were taped up he had the brass knucks um yeah it wasn't the best match it wasn't bad uh but overall the show really really good really good this week I'd agree with that. It it kind of falls by the wayside with um with the the Hogan stuff again. You know the, the repetitiveness of the video package is kind of annoying. Um, obviously again I I understand that they're trying to promote the pay per view, but three separate adverts which are all the same, uh, for the pay per view and there's no variation, at all. You're just getting the same advert over and over and over again. Um, and it's cutting into match time. Yeah, it is. It is. Uh, hopefully that improves as we go on, but. All in all, not not going too badly. We're, we're now, you know, six weeks into Nitro's tenure. Uh, we're neck and neck with Raw already, and things are, are looking good from a storyline point of view, especially with wrestlers like Ben War coming in. As you said, Hawk being in singles competition right now. So, so some good stuff to look forward to, Brian. Yep, can't wait. That's going to round up our third episode of the Nitro Gem podcast. We really appreciate you guys listening in, as always. We've travelled the world, even though we're on lockdown. We're not able to fly anywhere, but it seems that over the audio waves and over the internet, we are able to go wherever we please. Because again, the guys in Germany, the guys in Chile, the guys in America, and of course, our friends all over the United Kingdom are tuning in, listening to us babble about all things good and bad WCW, and I'm really, really humbled by that. Yeah, I couldn't imagine it being anything like this so sudden. Yeah, thank you to everybody that's listening no matter where you are in the world thank you and i sincerely hope that we are providing a little bit of entertainment and a distraction in these very difficult times understandably being locked indoors it can play on your mental health i'm actually suffering a little bit with my mental health as a result so if you are no matter where you are who you are if you're suffering with mental health issues and you need to chat with anybody uh, reach out I've always got an open ear. That's excellent, that, Brian. Of course, the social media channels are always open. Uh, you can like us on Facebook, and you can always search for us, Nitro Gencast, on Twitter, on Reddit, and on Instagram. Any feedback or any suggestions that you guys might have, or even if you just want to talk, whether it's wrestling-related or not wrestling-related, as Brian just said, our ears, our eyes, we're always open. We're always up for a good chat. We're always up for a good laugh, but we can be serious as well when the need arises. So... He's been Das Achtung Kid, because I got it wrong, and a German guy told me I got it wrong. Fantastic. <laughs> so Even I was pronouncing it wrong then. <laughs> so he has been Das Achtung Kid, Brian Bradshaw, and I, of course, have been Marvellous Mark Ashworth, and we will see you soon for another episode of Nitrogen Podcast. See ya. See ya.